Good morning. Uh, grab a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're taking a break from Acts, and I love this. If you have any questions about today's message, email Ian. Don't email me. Actually, no, just uh, we are doing a podcast this week, uh, so just John at BroadwayCC.org. If there's anything you want us to talk about on the podcast, uh, shoot me an email uh, this week. But anyway, if, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to be spending some time flipping through 1 Samuel 8 together. Not, not many of the scriptures are going to be up on the screen. Uh, we have Legacy Standard version of the Bible. We just switched to that. They're back on the uh, shelves back there. Or the LSB app is a very useful tool. I'd recommend downloading that if you prefer your Bible on a device. Anyway, there is a literary device I learned about this week. My life is so exciting. Uh, it's a figure of speech that we're probably all familiar with, but had no idea what it was called. You should have been in my office when I was trying to Google this type of phrase, because I knew it was called something, I just didn't know what it was called. And it, it's called a lidities. A lidities. A lidities is a figure of speech featuring a phrase that utilizes negative wording or terms to express a positive assertion or statement. So what does that mean? Well, there are everyday examples in, in how we speak. There's stuff in, there's examples in movies, books. Uh, for example, uh, someone, I ask you, how are you? You might respond and say, I'm doing well, uh, doing great. Or you could say, not bad, not bad. That's an example of a uh, negative wording to express something positive. Or you might say that about a movie. You know, that, that movie, it was not bad. Uh, you're, in a, you're debating with someone, you might say, you know what, you're not wrong. I can't disagree with your logic. Uh, you have car repair, and you'd say, uh, man, fixing my car was expensive. Or you could say, fixing my car was not cheap. Amen. Uh, some other examples, I can't turn down that offer. Her decision was not the worst. Your effort has not gone unnoticed. And if you grew up in the 90s, you might get this movie reference. This is no ordinary lamp. Anybody? No, you're with me. Some of you got it. So today and through the month of June, we're taking a short break from, from Acts, and we're spending some time looking at King David, who, as we'll see, was described as a man after God's own heart. But first, I want to look at his opposite. I want to look at his negative. To, to understand the good qualities of King David, we first need to understand the negative qualities of his predecessor and some of the history that led up to, to choosing him as king. So in the book of 1 Samuel, we read about a lot of people. And one prominent figure uh, right at the beginning is Eli. Now, Eli was a priest who trained Samuel. Uh, Samuel is believed, he, he wrote the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's also, uh, we also think that he wrote the book of Judges. Uh, so Eli was a priest who trained Samuel, and Eli's sons were meant to carry on this mantle of priest. However, uh, we read that they abused their position, and Eli just turned a, a blind eye to all their issues. So here's an example, and I want you to remember this phrase, failed hereditary leadership. Failed hereditary leadership. So Eli, over time, he loses his position, and Samuel becomes God's man. He is the priest. He is the judge over Israel. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. And it happened when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Sound familiar? The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after greedy gain and took bribes and caused justice to turn aside. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at, at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. So just like Eli, Samuel appoints his sons to, to carry on the, you know, the family business, the family tradition. And what happens? They're greedy. They're unjust. Failed hereditary leadership. Verse 5, the people come to Samuel and they say, this isn't working. They say, you're old. Your sons are terrible. Give us a king like all the other nations. So their solution to failed hereditary leadership is hereditary monarchical leadership. That's worse. That's worse. Israel is meant to be holy, which today, you know, we might think of holiness as the state of perfection. You know, there's a light from heaven coming in. There's a choir ah, in the background. But when God told Israel in Leviticus 11.44 to be holy, for I am holy, he meant to be set apart. He meant to be distinct, different, other. And here in 1 Samuel 8, the people are asking to be just like all the other nations. Not set apart, not different, just like everybody else. You know, a main thread that we'll see in this series throughout, uh, throughout the month of June are the, the many parallels and applications to us today. And here's one example. The Apostle Peter will later say that the church, the church is the inheritor of, of Israel's status as God's chosen people, God's special people. We're his holy nation. We, like them, are to be a people whose behavior is governed by God's ruling word. We, like, like Israel, are to be different, distinct, and holy. We, like them, are supposed to be a light to the nations, declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And like Israel, we often want to be just like everybody else. We desire a, a king like all the other nations, not the king of kings ruling over our hearts and our lives. Well, suffice to say, this perturbs Samuel. Samuel is perturbed. He takes it personally. I mean, I would. They called him old, among other things. And God says this to Samuel in verse 7. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God says, Samuel, stop it, man. Stop taking this personally. They're, they're, not, they're not offending you. They're offending me. I'm supposed to be their king. I'm supposed to be the one that fights their battles for them. They're rejecting me. But what God does next is he says, all right, Samuel, make sure the people know what they're getting into. So Samuel, Samuel goes to the, the people. He says, you want a king? He's going to take your sons for his army. He's going to take your daughters to, to work for him. He's going to take the best of your crops for himself and for his servants. In fact, your servants are going to become his servants, and he's going to do what he wants. He's going to take your people, and he's going to take your resources. And then in verse 18, God says, Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. Too bad, so sad, your dad. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us, and fight our battles. 
So this is like when you tell your kids not to do something and you go through all the negative consequences. You know, if you do this, this likely this is going to happen. If you do that, this is going to happen. And then what? They do it anyway, right? They do. <laughs> I see a few smiles of parents who are with their kids now. Uh, so God gives them what they want. He gives them what they want, a king like all the other nations. Jump over to chapter 9, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of uh, Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. Now he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So if you keep reading, which I, I would encourage you to do so, read a few chapters of 1 Samuel this week. Saul basically becomes king because he's taller and more handsome than the other guys. And if that's how leadership worked around here, I would be the pastor of Broadway and not Ian. <laughs> now, if you want to tell on me, go ahead, because he was there when I came up with that joke, and he liked it. So Ian approved. In chapter 11, uh, Saul defeats the king of the Ammonites, who is, his name was Nahash. And that name means snake or serpent. Now, now snake imagery, imagery is important to pay attention to when we see it. Uh, so let's think back to creation in Genesis. You have Adam and Eve. Um, Satan lies to them and says, uh, and convinces them to eat the forbidden fruit. And Satan is in the form of what? A snake, a serpent. Yeah. So they're in the Garden of Eden. They eat the forbidden fruit. Sin enters the world. And God says this to the snake. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God promises that one of the descendants of Eve is going to bruise, or it can be translated as, as crush, crush the head of the snake and restore what Adam had lost. We've talked about this before, but this is called the, the Proto-Evangelion. It's the, it's, it's the first gospel. This is the first mention of, of God's plan of redemption, which is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus will be the one to crush the head of the snake. But in 1 Samuel 11, it looks as if Saul might be the new Adam who will, who will crush the snake. But then in chapters 13 through 15, he turns out to be a repeat of the behavior of, of the old Adam. God's king will crush the snake, as Saul foreshadowed in 1 Samuel 11 by defeating the king Nahash. But that ultimate king is not Saul. Saul is not the snake crusher. He is not the redeemer of humanity. Saul is Adam. Saul is humanity. Now, through the rest of 1 Samuel, Saul's history as king is extremely sad. It's really, it's, it's really sad to, to read. We learn how he disqualifies himself. And in chapter 13, Saul is fighting the Philistines. And, it, and uh, so here's, here's just one example. It seems as though Saul and Samuel have some sort of plan in place. You know, Samuel's going to come. Samuel's the priest. He's going to come and offer sacrifices to Yahweh on behalf of Saul and his soldiers. Turn with me. Chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. So he, Saul, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring near to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. 
You might read that and go, okay, it's not a big deal, right? But, but it was a big deal. Saul was not supposed to do that. Only God's priest could offer the sacrifice. Only an appointed priest could do that. And wouldn't you know it, this is, I have so many examples of this from when I was a kid, but I'm doing something wrong and mom and dad, mom or dad show up right in that moment. But so here comes Samuel right at that moment. Saul makes the sacrifice. Samuel shows up. Uh-oh. And he says, Saul, what have you done? Verse 13. Verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh, your God, which he commanded over you. For now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Now, we, we might be inclined to have a little sympathy for Saul. I mean, there's an army of soldiers, of Philistines. His people are deserting him. And meanwhile, Samuel's in, intervention sounds a little harsh. He, he says, you've acted foolishly. But that word fool or, or foolish has a particular meaning in the Old Testament. It's not simply the ancient equivalent of calling someone an idiot. According to Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is not simply an atheist. This is someone who lives as though God does not exist or does not matter. Saul's problem was that he was acting as though God wasn't going to intervene. He was acting as though God wouldn't act. And if you follow Old Testament history, God had a proven track record of delivering his people out of impossible situations. Saul, Saul did not keep the Lord's command because he did not really trust the Lord. It's an outward reflection of what's, what's in his heart. He was untrusting. And this isn't the only occurrence. We see that character trait in Saul a lot throughout 1 Samuel. I had to cut some things for time, but, but Saul makes a very rash, unloving vow against his own son in chapter 14. Then in chapter 15, he openly disobeys God, and then he, he repents without really repenting. What we read in chapter 15 is Saul just saying he's sorry without, uh, without really meaning it. He's making excuses for his actions. And what it really boils down to is that Saul cared much more about how he looked in the people's eyes than in God's eyes. Back to chapter 13, verse 14, did you catch what Samuel said to Saul? He said, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And this, all, all this lead up, it all gets us to David. Now, who is David? Well, to use Elitites, he's not Saul. David is not Saul. He is a man after God's own heart. Chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1 then Yahweh said to Samuel, how long will you be grieving over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I see among his sons a king for me. Samuel says, okay. He obeys. He goes to Bethlehem, uh, a quaint little town on the Judean hills about five miles south of Jerusalem. And the elders of the town, they see Samuel coming and they're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. What did, we, what did we do now? And they say, Samuel, do you come in peace? They probably weren't, but I imagine them like hiding behind stuff like an old Western. Do you come in peace? 
And he said, in peace. Verse 5, in peace I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Set yourselves apart as holy and come with me to the sacrifice. He also set apart Jesse and his sons as holy and invited them to the sacrifice. Now it happened when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the anointed of Yahweh is before him. Notice what's happening? Saul's following the same pattern as the people of Israel. When they chose Saul, he's looking to the firstborn, he's looking to the tallest son and thinks this has to be the guy. He looks the kingliest among them. Surely this is the anointed of Yahweh. Verse 7, but Yahweh said to Samuel, stop calling me Shirley. No, <laughs> little dad joke, sorry. Says, no, he didn't say that. He says, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Yahweh looks at the heart. There's that word again. If only If only we could see people in situations like God sees them. If only we could see our own hearts, our own lives, our own sin, the way that God sees us. We need to be a people who pray, God, open our eyes and help us to see like you see. So Samuel goes goes down the line through seven of Jesse's sons, and none of them are the next king. Now, Samuel's pretty smart. God told him that one of Jesse's sons is king, so Samuel knows one of them must be missing an action. There must be another son somewhere. Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the young men? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is shepherding the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not turn around until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So what happens after this? We're going to camp in that area for a minute. But I want to just show real quick what happens next because I think it's important. Does David start strutting around and saying, I'm the next king. I'm awesome. Does he go back to Saul and say, hey, Saul, get out. This is my house. No, he goes right back to take care of the sheep. There's a little more story in here, but in verse 9, it says, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is where? He's with the flock. He's with the flock. And we see this a few times in the next couple chapters. David starts working for Saul as a musician in his court. And David just keeps going back to take care of the sheep. He goes to fight Goliath, goes to take care of the sheep. David is waiting on God's perfect timing. And I, th- I thought that was worth mentioning. I never noticed that until recently, that he's with the flock. God chose David because he was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the qualities that David displayed that are in harmony with God's heart. And we'll see how we can check our heart rate and line our hearts up with God's. David, David was the antithesis of Saul. That's not to say he was perfect. But while Saul was so untrusting, we're going to see David's great trust in the Lord. While Saul never really truly repented, never really turned from his sin, 
We're going we're gonna to see David's true repentance when he fails, and he fails big time. We're going to see the way that David loved God and his people. We're going to see his openness to God through a life of worship. God is looking at your life. He's looking at your circle of influence. He's looking at your town, your neighborhood, and he's looking for his people to whom he can say, that man right there, that woman right there, they, are, they have a heart like mine. That person, they are mine, and I, I want to use them there. For me, that's one of the most incredible mysteries about God. Why does he choose to use us? You ever think that? Why does he, use to choo- why does he choose to use someone like, someone like you, someone like me, to accomplish his will on the earth? We'll never fully understand it, but, but I want to be in a position where God can use me and where I'm ready to say yes to whatever he has for me. I want my heart to be lined up with his. Do you? That being said, if, if we only look at David and say, how does this apply to me? You know, how does David's life apply to my character? How does it apply to me and my future? How can I be a man or woman after God's own heart? If, if, if that's all we do, we would be missing something crucial. Something crucial. Because while, while it's important to apply biblical lessons to our lives, let's not forget who the Bible points to. Let's not forget who is the, one who, the only one who can truly transform our hearts. The Bible is all about Jesus. It all points to him. It's all about the story of redemption that God is telling throughout history. So another way to look at this short phrase, a man after God's own heart, is that it is an expression of God's choice. It's an expression of God's choice. The Australian theologian John Woodhouse said this, speaking of this phrase, a a man of God's own choosing, a man God has set his heart on. It is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. Years later, David, David will reflect on what God has done for him in 2 Samuel 7. And he says, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, for you have done all this greatness to let your slave know. According to your own heart, in 2 Samuel 7, is, is literally after your own heart. It's the exact same expression used in 1 Samuel 13, 14. David has been exalted because of what was in God's heart, his sovereign, gracious will. Now, the name Saul means asked for, ironically. He is the, he's the king the people asked for. He is the people's choice, and his reign ends in failure. David will be God's choice. He is not Saul. He's not who the people asked for, and from his dynasty will come the new Adam, Jesus, who is the snake crusher. And although David is flawed, he is a representation of the perfect Messiah who will come. David is a Messiah figure. Through the line of King David, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ will come. Just as David was such an unlikely choice, surprising everyone, God's going to send his son in the most unlikely of ways, surprising everybody. David is a, is a precursor to the good shepherd. And just as David saw it as more important to be with his sheep than flex his newly anointed muscles, Jesus will move heaven and earth to be with and save his sheep. Paul, speaking about this in Philippians 2, verse 6, says this, 
who although existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So while David is someone that, that we can emulate, we can look to him as, as an example of what it means to line our hearts up with God's heart. He ultimately points us to Jesus. He ultimately points us to Jesus. A new and better David has come and offers eternal life and wants to transform our hearts. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your plan. We're so thankful, God, that uh, you, while sin separates us from you, God, you, you knew that was gonna happen. You always had a plan on how to save us and how to restore a right relationship with you. Thank you for the victory we have because of Jesus. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you sent your son who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God, we remember that sacrifice now by taking communion, by taking the bread and and the cup, his body broken, his blood shed for us. God, as a reminder that that we need you. A reminder that we are to be set apart, that you have a, you've called us into this glorious purpose, this plan that is still being unfolded throughout history. God, would you draw us closer to you? Because while we can learn the, the principles of, you know, how to, how to have a heart like David's, God, you're the only one who can change our hearts. Thank you again for who you are and for what you've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so glad you spent time with us today, and we hope that you were encouraged. Remember to connect with us by using the form at broadwaycc.org. Have a great week.